Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, how to get more plant-based meals onto college campuses as we speak with folks from the Humane Society and Smith College Dining to hear about how they're collaborating to bring more vegan breakfast to campus. And Congressman McGovern gets into his views on Governor Healy's State of the Commonwealth address, Biden's presidential bid, and his recently proffered bill to alleviate the fallout from scams. But we begin with the Black Legacy Project. The Black Legacy Project launched in the Berkshires in September of 2021. It's a musical celebration of black history to advance racial solidarity, equity, and belonging. The first phase of the project wrapped up in June 2023 with the completion of Project launched in six additional communities across the country. As it traveled the country, the Black Legacy Project brought together black and white artists and artists of all backgrounds to record present-day interpretations of songs central to the black American experience and to compose originals relevant to the pressing calls for change of our time. Community roundtable discussions helped inform how these songs were interpreted and written. This past September, 12 of the 24 songs recorded for the project were released on the debut album, Black Legacy Project Volume 1. A touring band of eight musicians from across the country was assembled and hit the road upon the release of the album. That band, which features Berkshire natives Krishna Guthrie and Catherine Winston, will make its debut appearance this Saturday, January 20th, at the Stationery Factory in Dalton. The Black Legacy Project is produced by Music in Common, a Berkshire-born, Atlanta-based nonprofit that strengthens, empowers, and connects communities through the universal language of ma- music. Not magic, but music <laughs> is magical. It sure is. <laughs> and we're joined by the organization's founder, singer-songwriter, and producer, Todd Mack, who formed Music in Common in response to the murder of his friend and bandmate, Daniel Pearl, the Wall Street Journal reporter who was abducted by terrorists in 2002. We are also joined by Music in Common program coordinator, Trey Carlisle. Both were named CNN champions for change for their work with the Black Legacy Project. Both serve as project co-directors to the endeavor. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. So grateful to be here. <laughs> this project is incredible. Um, uh, we spent a lot of the day today looking at your CNN uh, feature and watching some of our friends and musicians from the area participate in this project. There was also shout out to New England Public Media, Connecting Point piece uh, <laughs> that was done with all of you all. But how does how does the Berkshires and Atlanta hook up for a project like this? Mm. Well, uh, Todd music Mack. in common was- <laughs> yes, uh, thank you, uh, Monty. Music in Common was was founded in the Berkshires in 2005, uh, and we operated out of the area uh, until about 2018, uh, when we relocated down to Atlanta. Uh, we're still very active locally. We have lots of boots on the ground uh, here in the region, um, so we feel like we have two homes now and instead of one. Um, and for a project like the Black Legacy Project. Um, in different but equally powerful ways, both locations are uh, strongly aligned with with the mission of the Black Legacy Project. The death of George Floyd was a big motivating factor in creating the Black Legacy Project. Can you talk a little bit about that and about your relationship to this and how you got involved there, Trey? Of course. Yes. So um, I've been involved with Music in Common for coming up on eight years now. Um, starting off as a youth program participant and really having my life transformed through seeing the power of using music in tandem with uh, facilitated dialogue to build bridges between communities and conflict. Um, So fast forward to 2020, when Todd and I are seeing the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey um, on the news and social media, 
and the growing level of polarization um, in the nation around uh, race relations in the U.S. Uh, Todd and I were both moved to explore how we can bring what we do at Music in Common um, to the context of U.S. race relations, specifically anti-Black uh, race relations in the U.S. And as musicians, Todd and I, we were both listening to music uh, that spoke to the times of the day. Todd was listening to all of these Bob Dylan songs and was moved by this, um, this uh, young white man from uh, rural Minnesota writing these songs in solidarity with the Black American struggle. And I'm listening to songs by Billie Holiday and Sam Cooke being struck by how they're still relevant today. So we wanted to create um, a pro space where we could combine what we do at Music in Common um, to help folks reimagine these songs throughout history that still speak to today um, and allow musicians to explore what would it be like for these messages to be performed by the words um, of black and white musicians in the present day and what we can do to move forward, how we can learn from them and learn from being in conversation with one another um, to advance greater equity and belonging in the nation. But those older songs are not all that you do. Like there's new music on this album and that you bring to this project. How do you let those older songs inform the songs that you create for this project? Mm. Yes. So in every community that we travel to, we select a theme um, that we have community members um, explore. A theme um, centered around race relations, the distinct um, experience of race relations in the community that we travel to and song that have direct ties to those communities, whether they're written by artists from those communities or the songs speak to a topic or theme of race relations that is distinct in that community. So for example, um, when we took the project to Los Angeles, um, the theme was American skin. Uh, we wanted community members to explore how um, people um, are treated in the United States and how they are treated in the United States, their lived experience is very much shaped not just by the color of their skin, um, but actually probably more importantly, how they are portrayed and stereotyped and dehumanized in the media and in cinema. Um, we wanted to explore that theme in uh, Los Angeles, which is the media capital of the world um, for generations. And as a result, the songs that we chose were uh, American Skin or 41 Shots by Bruce Springsteen um, and Sweeter by Leon Bridges. Both have direct ties to Los Angeles and both very much speak to this theme of having your life cut short based on the stereotypes and the rhetoric um, that dehumanizes you and the color of your skin. And then from that, um, and from discussing those conversations in community, we then had community members in our roundtables discuss well, what are tangible steps that we can take to move forward, um, to advance greater belonging, to create a world where one's um, lived experience in this nation is not negatively impacted from the color, by the color of their skin. And as a result, the musicians that we uh, involved and tasked with reimagining these songs and co-writing these original songs um, brought their answers to what are tangible steps that we can make in the original songs that they wrote. We're speaking with Trey Carlisle and Todd Mack, who are the co-directors of the Black Legacy Project, who are going to be bringing a live performance back to the Berkshires where they were launched this Saturday at the Stationery Factory in Dalton. 
And Trey, you were saying, you know, you're having these community conversations about these songs of old or or recent and also creating new songs. Is this a conversation with the wider community in the six or seven communities that you're working with right now? Or is it this the musical community? You're getting just musicians here or is it, you know, other just fans of music or people interested in the project that you have going? No, that's a great question. So yeah, in every community that we traveled to during the launches, we started off the week-long launch with a community conversation, a roundtable that was open to everybody, regardless if you had a musical background or not. Um, and most of the people didn't. And we intentionally brought black and white community members together, spanning ages and generations, um, to discuss uh, these songs and these themes and topics in community together in an integrated setting but then midway in the conversation, they would break out into racial affinity groups where black folks would discuss among themselves how these themes and songs relate to their lived experiences and what they would like white folks to know about their lived experiences. And then vice versa, white folks would do the same. And then they came together to share what they learned. Um, and that affinity group model um, not only was at the core of the roundtable discussions, but when we did engage in the musical process where um, we had four black and white musicians reimagine these songs and then co-write an original. They use an affinity group model in that uh, creation process as well. Black folks were tasked with reimagining one song, white folks were tasked with reimagining another song, and then they came together to co-write their original song. That model happened in every community we launched the project in. Todd Mack, I'm interested to know from you if, uh, you know, there were people that you encountered who didn't want to talk about race. Race is a very hard thing to talk about, but that who had a, an easier time talking about it because you're using music. Kalise and I have said many times on this show, if there are things that bring all peoples together, uh, one of them's food and, and the another one is music. And so that seems to be at the heart of what the Black Legacy Project is really about. Are these conversations about race? Um, less acrimonious because they're harmonious with music, I guess. That's, I mean, that's a, it's a great observation and, and, a, and, a, and a true one, an accurate one. I mean, I think that um, two things sort of happen when all these roundtable discussions are all um, structured around the lyrics of the songs that the local musicians we've tasked to reimagine them. Uh, and the roundtable participants are sort of analyzing these lyrics. So the, the, it sort of deflects away from uh, this sort of one-on-one -on -one confrontational kind of environment where the focus can be on the words and how you're interpreting the lyrics, how you're interpreting what's being said in the song. Um, I think also that music has this incredible power to not only connect us, but also to sort of lower the temperature in the room so that people might be more willing to engage in what can be a very difficult and uncomfortable conversation. And, and that discomfort is good, by the way, but it's also something that, will, that can scare people away. And we don't want to scare people away. We want them to sort of lean into that discomfort. And you have to sort of uh, provide a, an environment that's um, less intimidating, I think. And, and music is an amazing, an amazing resource for doing that. Along, just curious in in light of that, have there been moments in these roundtables where there was a song brought up where the discussion got so disparate that it 
in it engendered some other form of creativity like some song came up that divided the crowd so much that you ended up with different new art from it uh trey carlisle (laughs) (laughs) um yeah um this this is kind of a teaser of um (laughs) what you can expect for volume two Ah. um but one of the communities that we launched the project in was um, Atlanta, Georgia, um, which is very meaningful to talk about with this week really being one that is honoring um, the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And the theme that we had uh, people explore during that launch was building the beloved community. How do we carry on Dr. King's legacy of building this world where everybody is cared for and can share in the wealth of the earth? And one of the songs that was explored and it was reimagined um, was um, one that people in the Black Affinity Group um, didn't feel specifically or um, um, tangibly um, talked about um, the experience of of race and the and Black Americans' experience of race when it comes to wanting to build a world where everybody belongs and create change. Um, now, granted, the song that was discussed and chosen. In its original context, um, it wasn't written in the context of speaking about race. Um, but from that, um, we this was an opportunity for the musical co-directors to explore, okay, well then how can they reimagine this song in a way that does speak to this theme of building the beloved community? Um, that can be more ex- intentional and explicit when talking about the role that um, uh, race and building a world where people of all racial backgrounds experience equity and belonging. And, um, and it was very, very beautiful to see the, the way in which they reimagined it. So I'm excited for folks to uh, listen to that one. Are um, you going to tell us what song it was? No, two. no, teasers, <laughs> teasers. You have to come to the show. <laughs> well, that's volume two. It is one of the songs that will be performed. Oh, the okay, good. Good. So that's Saturday, January 20th, this Saturday at the Stationery Factory in Dalton. It'll be the return of the Black Legacy Project to the Berkshires. And after a break, I want to talk about more of the Berkshire connections between some of these iconic songs like Lift Every Voice and Sing or the Western Mass Connection to Strange Fruit. We're speaking with the co-directors of the Black Legacy Project, Trey Carlisle and Todd Mack. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. We are with the Black Legacy Project co-directors Trey Carlisle and Todd Mack. The Black Legacy Project returns to the Berkshires for a special concert event this Saturday, January 20th at the Stationery Factory in Dalton. Joined by Bree Nicola and Annie Guthrie (laughs) and Eric Reinhardt and other local artists. This is going to be a really fun show. It does sound like a great show. And as we were mentioning before the break, there are, you know, the Berkshires might not be the first place you think of when you think of black music in America. Uh, However, there are some Berkshire connections even to uh, what often is called the the Black National Anthem. Trey Carlisle, one of the the co-directors of the Black Legacy Project, do you want to talk about the local connection to Lift Every Voice and Sing? Of course, yeah. So Lift Every Voice and Sing, um, which was originally called a national hymn when it was written um, as a poem by James Weldon Johnson. Um, James Weldon Johnson was a contemporary of W.E.B. Du Bois, 
um, and a very powerful um, uh, civil rights activist and artist. Um, but he had a writing cabin up here in the Berkshires um, and uh, would come here um, when he needed to take breaks from his activism to be able to create some of his you know, most uh, well-known artistic works. Um, so it's really powerful that you got like this site of um, where the man who wrote the Black National Anthem um, would retreat and travel to in the Berkshires. Um, and that's not all. Um, also, you have, of course, W.E.B. Du Bois, um, who grew up here in the Berkshires. Um, one of the songs that um, was reimagined re um, as part of the Black Legacy Project was W.E.B. Du Bois' poem, My Country Tis of Thee, um, which he wrote um, actually kind of as a reimagination of um, the initial, initial hymn by Samuel Francis Smith. Um, and so it was really beautiful to have that explored as part of the project. And then um, one of W.E.B. Du Bois' colleagues um, was Abel Mirapool, who is the man who wrote uh, Strange Fruit. Um, so it's, it's very beautiful to see uh, the connections that a lot of these like really profound songs in Black American history have uh, to this place in um, uh, rural uh, New England. And Abe Mirapool and his family uh, adopted the Rosenberg children after the U.S. government executed them as alleged nuclear spies. So the, the, their history and legacy of, of social justice and righteousness that's connected to Western Mass and the Berkshires uh, is not lost on me, but sometimes gets lost uh, in the shuffle of, of the greater history. I mean, including one of the members of the band. You have Annie Guthrie, who is um, like of of Woody Guthrie and, and Arla in, in that family. And the ties to Pete Seeger as well with like We Shall Overcome, one of the, one of the songs on this first volume that you've put out. Like there's there's so many connections across the board. Can you talk about the influence of the Guthries and the Seegers and their Berkshire connection to what the Black Legacy Project is up to? Todd Mack, one of the co-directors? Yes, sure. Um, so uh, Annie Guthrie, um, as Gleese just mentioned, was a musical co-director here in the Berkshires when we launched the project. Uh, she reimagined with Eric Reinhardt, We Shall Overcome, a song uh, made famous by Pete Seeger, which really became sort of the, the, the anthem or the theme song, if you will, for the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s. Um, Annie's uh, brother, Abe, recorded those sessions at the Guthrie Center in Housatonic, Mass. And um, Abe's son, Annie's nephew, Krishna, is part of the touring band. So mm -hmm. the Guthrie family seems to be all over this thing. And I think that, <laughs> that seems kind of fitting when you think of um, you know the spirit of Woody Guthrie, for sure, and, and what he was setting out to do with music uh, as, as his, his, uh, his weapon, if you will, his tool. His machine um, kills fascists, as it said on his right. guitar. <laughs> and Pete Seeger said this banjo surrounds hate and, oh, and forces it to surrender, I think. Maybe a little yeah, exactly. bit more tempered look, but the same, right. two sides yeah. of the same coin. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I think both, both, both sort of exemplify um, how music can be this incredibly powerful um, art form in creating change, in bringing people together, in facilitating hard conversations. Speaking of being all over, this project started in the Berkshires. It's moved to Atlanta, but it's now in a total of, I do believe, seven areas. How did you 
get into those other locales and what was it like interacting with black populations there? Yeah, so I'll start it off and then kind of hand it off to Trey. But, you know, in, in choosing the seven communities, we we really wanted to create sort of a snapshot of the United States and the lived American experience. And so uh, the seven communities are Los Angeles, Mississippi Delta, Atlanta, Boise, Denver, the Berkshires, and the Ozarks in Northwest Arkansas. So you have in the eastern part of the country, the western part of the country, north, south, rural, big city, extremely diverse locations, very homogenous, sometimes predominantly black, sometimes predominantly white, and really just trying to create a, 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 as best we could a snapshot of what this country as a whole looks like. Um, and, you know, I think uh, Trey did a really amazing job and, you know, he, he really should get his PhD for this project. He <laughs> put in to, to learning about black history um, in not only each of these seven communities, but it was really a much, much larger list that then got whittled down to seven. I think we started with over 50 communities that we were looking at, mm. how to whittle it down to these seven. And I'll, I'll sort of hand it off to Trey to just kind of talk about that experience and sort of the things that he learned in the process. Yeah, I mean, the, the most beautiful thing that I learned from the process, which is something that Todd um, and I believe and is what inspired us to take this approach of creating the snapshot of America is that there is black history everywhere. Um, there is a history of race relations everywhere. Um, there's a history of positive and negative um, race relations everywhere. Um, because what is also not talked about, of course, black history in different communities is very much under taught, I would say, or under um, exposed. But Equally as underexposed, this is history of black and white folks working together in solidarity um, to advance equity and belonging. Um, and you have that history in every community as well. Um, so we wanted the black LP in these seven communities that we've launched the project in to um, embody that, to show that there is this type of history um, and a need for these type of conversations in every community. And as a result, it was so powerful to see in every community that we went to consistently community members eager and like craving and appreciating being able to have these roundtable discussions to talk about the legacy of race relations, the impact that it has on their day-to-day -day experiences, to hear about how the dynamics of and legacy of race relations in the Mississippi Delta is very different than that in Boise, Idaho, is very different than that in Los Angeles, which is very different than that in Atlanta. Um, and to be able to provide a platform for folks to be able to discuss this and learn from each other. Um, and then to see the beautiful music, the meaningful music that came out of it. Um, it, it was a beautiful, beautiful launch. And you know, our hope is that um, we c this can only grow and that we can continue to do launches um, in more and more communities through people bringing us um, and supporting us and being able to do so. I think you get a PhD for sure. I mean, you've there, been Trey working Carter. on this project long enough. <laughs> like, we award you an honorary PhD from the fabulous 413. We are not a man. <laughs> and the album, I appreciate the album is great. Volume one is out and available. And the Black Legacy Project Live is going to be returning to the Berkshires where this project was born for a special concert 
this Saturday at the Stationery Factory in Dalton. And I know that you're working on Volume 2. You had a great teaser about what's going to be, what song's going to be on there. That will be performed on Saturday night. We've also got a seven-part docu-series that's going to be highlighting the communities. Coming out later in the year. Yeah, that's exciting. So we'll be looking out for that as well. Thank you so much for joining us, Trey Carlisle and Todd Mack, who are the co-directors of the Black Legacy Project. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. Oh, I love this breakdown in your version of the three voice and sing. When it gets real churchy, I was super, super for it. Yeah. <laughs> Later in the show, if breakfast is the most important meal of the day, shouldn't we try and make it more healthy? We'll talk with Smith College Dining and the Humane Society about creating more plant-based breakfasts. But up next, Congressman Jim McGovern on the state of the Commonwealth and the beginning of election season 2024. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, offering solar options, energy security, and solutions for the local community. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Were you in uh, Worcester for all the snow, or were you in D.C.? No, I was in D.C. I came back on uh, my the King's birthday. Uh-huh. So it was snowing that day, but, but, but yeah, no, I, I came into here that day. So You didn't have to shovel? I did the week before. I did, yeah. But I saw you I, tweeting I, pictures I, of you with the shovel, so that was yeah. Lisa told me that the snow wasn't that bad in Worcester. It was only like a few inches, a couple yeah. of inches. Messy out here. So. Time for our weekly check-in with U.S. Congressman from the Second Congressional District of Massachusetts, Worcester's own Jim McGovern, the ranking member of the Rules Committee, he joins us every week and takes your questions. The Fab four one three at nepm.org, and we've got a listener question from Lucy Gertz coming up in just a little bit here. But last night was Maura Healy, the governor of Massachusetts's first State of the Commonwealth address. Did you get a chance to hear any of that or assess any of that? I didn't. I just, you know, I just reviewed some of the clippings early this morning. And um, look, I, I, I think she's a, a great governor and, um, you know, we can accomplish some great things with her. She talked about issues that I think are, are real and that are important, like housing, that we need to deal with that. But, um, you know, I, overall, I've been impressed with her governorship and I have great respect for her and, and for Lieutenant Governor Driscoll as well. She did mention the relationship between Beacon Hill and Capitol Hill in the address last night in response to the housing crisis, the the migrant crisis that uh, you were referring to. She said, this is a hard issue with no easy answers. And I want to be clear, Massachusetts did not create this problem. We will continue to demand Congress take action to fix the border and get us funding to cover our costs. What is the latest in the relationship between Capitol Hill and Beacon Hill on issues like the migrant crisis, which has caused a housing crisis in the Commonwealth. She's right that Capitol Hill owes not only Massachusetts, but other states a hell of a lot more than they've been providing. You know, and one of the challenges on Capitol Hill right now is that we have a Republican majority in the House that is continuing to fight with itself. You know, I always tell people you don't have to agree on everything to agree on something. I mean, some of the stuff we should be able to agree on is we ought to enhance border security. Uh, we ought to be able to accelerate the asylum process so that people are waiting years. They are waiting weeks or months to be able to get their claims heard, and then they could either stay or they go. We ought to be able to agree that states ought to get additional federal funds to deal with uh, the migrants who have come into um, into our country. And yet we can't get the Speaker of the House to agree to bring any of those things to a vote. The only thing he wants to bring to the floor are bills that would basically eliminate our asylum 
process in this country, basically uh, undercut our values and talk about building walls on the border, which are stupid. I, mean, I don't know if a wall has ever been built that someone hasn't climbed over or dug under. There are better, more effective ways to deal with this stuff. But he won't bring any of this stuff to the floor. And I know this sounds cynical, but it, what I've concluded is they would really rather do nothing and have a political issue to be able to bang the president over the head with, you know, than do something that is actually in the interest of this country. So we'll see how this proceeds. Uh, there was a meeting at the White House yesterday, and the speaker basically continues to hold funding for Ukraine hostage unless we pass H.R. 2, which is this really awful, ugly horrific bill that I don't think would be effective, but would undercut our values. And so, I mean, that's kind of where we are. Well, back to the speaker, where uh, I think now two days before federal cash is set to run out again, is is this yeah. H2 contingent upon stopping a, another government shutdown? Well, my hope is that today the Senate will bring up a continuing resolution that will kick the can down the road until March 1st. And um, if they pass it, my hope is they will bring it to the House tonight or tomorrow, and we will vote on it. I mean, I think Democrats will certainly support it because we don't believe government shutdowns are good for anybody, and we hope we get enough Republicans that we can pass it. Now, the, the Speaker has a problem in that he's going to br- try to bring it up under what we call suspension of the rules, which needs, means you need a two-thirds uh, majority for it to pass because of the infighting within the Republican conference, they can't even support a rule to bring this up for consideration. We have made it clear to the speaker we're happy to work with him any way we can to avoid a government shutdown. A government shutdown is not good for our economy. People will be hurt. It is just a stupid idea, and we should avoid it at all costs. So I'm cautiously optimistic that by tomorrow we will have passed this kick the can down the road bill for March 1st. <laughs> I guess that's better than nothing. But does that put Speaker yeah, Johnson it, in, a, yeah, in a vulnerable yeah. position like the former Speaker McCarthy was in now that Marjorie Taylor Greene is already indicating that she may want to call for his removal? I mean, at some point, sensible people in the Republican conference, to the extent that there are any left, are going to have to just say enough when it comes to Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and all these other characters. The job of the party that's in charge in Congress is to make sure that the process moves forward, that we govern, that we get stuff done. This is going to go down in history as the least productive Congress in our history. It's not because there's not bipartisan agreement on certain things. Um, It is because there's such infighting, such turmoil within the Republican conference that they can't even agree on what to bring to the floor and they can't even agree that anything should be brought to the floor. So we need to get through this year, and hopefully the elections will give us a majority back, and we get back to getting stuff done. Um, And Speaker Johnson doesn't seem to want to engage Democrats about maybe changing the rules so that Marjorie Taylor Greene is not dictating what happens in Congress. Um, These are things he has to decide for himself. We're happy to work with him to be reasonable, to get stuff done. You mentioned the elections later this year, and they are officially underway now that the Iowa caucuses happened this past Monday. We've got New Hampshire next week. You did mention last week on the show how critical an election year you think this is, that democracy is on the line. And we got an email question from Lucy, who says, I was listening to your show last week and heard the McGoverning segment. Oh, I love the branding that she even knows that it's called that. Uh, It left me with this question, though. What would Jim say to people who say they won't vote for Biden because of Biden's response to the Israel-Hamas war. This war is broadening now uh, with Yemen. This 
is something that the U.S. is funding to uh, no small degree, where Biden, if he really wanted to, could pull the plug on all the funding uh, for what Israel is continuing to do in Gaza. What do you say to people who say they don't think they can vote for Biden because of his response to the Israel-Hamas war? No, and I know this is a very emotional issue. Um, look at, I'm somebody who was called a long while ago for a ceasefire. I'm, I'm disappointed in the White House's response. I'm, 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 I'm concerned at the widening of this conflict. I wish they would act in a, in a very different way. Um, and I'm going to continue to try to persuade this White House to do that. But I will have a better chance of trying to move our country in a direction toward peace and toward respecting human rights with Joe Biden than I am with Donald Trump, who regularly, you know, says that he might use nuclear weapons, you know, who continues to bow down to Vladimir Putin, who thinks Kim Jong-un is, is a wonderful leader. Look, democracy is messy. And, you know, I, I, I don't ever recall a time in my lifetime when I've had a, we had a president, a democratic president that I've agreed with and everything. And this is not an easy election for people. Um, and I understand that. We who want this conflict in the Middle East to end need to continue to pressure Biden and we need to continue to protest and we need to continue to raise our voices and we need to try to figure out ways to, to bring this to an end. But to, to sit this election out essentially um, and to allow a demagogue and a wannabe dictator and somebody who embraces the values of fascism to become the president of the United States I, I think the choice is clear. I, I, at least for me, it is. And by the way, there are some things that I think we all can agree that Joe Biden is doing that are, are actually very, very positive. Um, I mean, from the investing in rebuilding our infrastructure to doing this White House conference on hunger, nutrition and, and health to trying to move us to address the issue of climate change, the biggest investment ever to combat climate change and the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, a, a man who's decent, um, we may not agree with him on what he's doing in the, in the Middle East, but, um, you know, who is not racist, um, who is not uh, going to continue to divide this country. I'm not a fan of Nikki Haley. I don't, I don't share her values, but I I'm listening to the way Donald Trump is talking about her in New Hampshire. I mean, the, the racism and the mocking of her heritage. And I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I just think this is one of these moments when, yeah, I, I get it. Joe Biden is not perfect, but look at the alternative here. Again, I wish, you know, I'm hoping Biden's policy will evolve sooner rather than later, but we're going to continue to push him on a ceasefire and uh, to push him to really move toward a two-state two solution. Is there bipartisan support for a ceasefire or any hope for a ceasefire at this moment right now with broadening conflict in Yemen, as I mentioned before? Is there is there any real talk happening about the U.S. making some real actions to try? I know they want to turn the lights back on in Gaza, some very small things like that. But like I said before, Biden could, for all intents and purposes, end this war himself right now by saying we're no longer supporting what Netanyahu is doing. So let's be clear. If Biden were to say that we're no longer supporting you know, Netanyahu right now, that doesn't necessarily mean the war ends. I mean, there are other places that Israel can get weapons from. Look, I, I continue to be hopeful. You know, one of the things that has to happen ultimately is that if we're going to get to a better situation in the Middle East, the Palestinians need to cultivate leadership that is not Hamas. Um, and when you know people tell me that Hamas are freedom fighters, I, I cringe because of, of their cruelty and their brutality, uh, not only in terms of what they did on October 7th, but in terms of how they treat people, uh, how they treated people within Gaza, number one. The second thing is Netanyahu has to go. I don't know how there is a future 
a peaceful future or a, a, a future that in, incorporates a Palestinian state that is economically viable, that gives Palestinians you know, hope with Netanyahu there. In many respects, we're, we're at a perfect storm. But we need to be pushing uh, Israel harder right now toward transitioning to a different phase, uh, one that is that ends this the bombing, and one that hopefully transitions the Israel gov- Israeli government to somebody who's more reasonable and rational, who's not holding on to power because because he's afraid that if he loses power, he'll be put in jail. I, I, I sense that the Biden administration is increasing the pressure on the Israeli government. It has not produced the results that I want or you want right now. That doesn't mean we we stop pushing. We keep on pushing. We keep on pushing. We keep on pushing. Peace is the only is the only realistic pathway to a better future for everybody, a secure Israel and a and a future for the Palestinians that they've been denied for so so long. Last question for you has to do with legislation that you introduced with Representative Jamie Raskin. It is called Tax Relief for Victims of Crimes, Scams, and Disasters Act. My teenage kids' bank accounts keep getting hacked. Is this going to help them out in some way? It seems to be this has more to do with crumbling foundations after no, you know, weather well, damage. No, but it could, it, it could be if you're scammed out of something or, or you're, you're a victim of some sort of crime. I, 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 you know, one of the things that brought me to this issue was the fact that we have a lot of um, homeowners that have bought uh, houses in my district, and I mean, but such as my district, all around the state, all around the region, in good faith, they've had housing inspections, but their foundation included this thing called peritite, which results in cracking in the foundations. And uh, the only way to deal with it is to lift your house and put in a new foundation, which sometimes costs more than your house did. Mm-hmm. The companies that have been responsible for the materials that are in foundations that you know, have escaped any kind of accountability. And we have homeowners that can't sell their homes and some of them have replaced their foundations, but that's their life savings. So I'm, I'm looking at this bill as one way to provide some relief to those individuals, but that, that's one scam. But there are a gazillion other scams as well. And, um, and oftentimes, you know, when you're scammed, it's like nothing you can do and nobody's accepting responsibility. Companies, you know, shut down and, and disappear and, uh, and you're left you know, high and dry. And so this is one way to provide relief to people who have become victims of these scams. And again, I just done a, a, a tour of, of houses that, that are crumbling foundations. So this, this might be something that could help them. U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, Worcester's own Congressman Jim McGovern. Happy to answer the questions that you send to us, and I'll ask on your behalf, thefab413 at nepm.org. Thanks as always, Congressman. Always good to talk to you. Be safe. Up next, getting more vegetables into the mornings at Smith College with Chef Herman <laughs> Alvarado and Dory Nang of the Humane Society. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. The Smith College dining staff has spent the better part of the last two days with chefs from the Humane Society to learn about adding more plant-based options to their breakfast and lunch menus. Smith partnered with the National Humane Society about six years ago, pledging to... take their menu to over 50% plant-based ingredients in their dining program. They've met that goal, but breakfast can be a tough meal to incorporate 
really delicious, nutritious, plant-based food. Yesterday, 12 members of Smith Dining were a part of a special training led by two plant-based expert chefs from the National Humane Society. And this morning, Dining served some of these dishes during breakfast. Here to tell us, how was breakfast? Is Herman Alvarado, Smith College Director of Culinary Services, returning here to the fabulous 413. But without snacks. Yeah, and Dory <laughs> Nang, Humane Society Food Service Innovator Specialist for New England, and they wish they were New England, New York, and New Jersey. Other which... parts of the country somehow think that New York and New Jersey are part of New England, but and they are wrong. They're wrong, yes. <laughs> they are wrong. But you cover New England and those other states. I do. I moved down to the Mid-Atlantic. Ah, That's good. A... See, you know what section I'm of the country from Philly. I am from Philly. So... Why is breakfast so hard to incorporate more plant-based options? Dory, who is handling this that, uh, for the Humane Society and Smith. Thank you very much, Monty. As you mentioned, we've worked with Smith since 2017. We've done trainings. We've done bakery assists. We've done plant-based galas. And today and yesterday, we were here for the breakfast and brunch training. But I think our chef's call to action was to veganize more plant-based, veganize the options for breakfast because it's typically pretty heavy food, eggs and bacon and sausage and a lot of cholesterol, mm. a lot of saturated fat, foods that really don't give us a lot of energy during the day. They kind of weigh us down. So our chef's call to action was to create really hearty and traditional fare, but just make them plant-based, not only for students who are vegan, just because it's colorful and it's healthy, and also uh, because it's more inclusive for kids who can't have dairy or eggs or for other reasons don't want those those products. So it was tough. These recipes just came out. I'm not a chef. I'm a nutrition <laughs> specialist. But these um, recipes came out in July, and Smith College is the first one to do an in-person training on these. So we got feedback from the students today and from the chef team yesterday. So what was it like cooking these recipes, and what feedback did you get? <laughs> because clearly they ate it already. What was what was it like? Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. Mm. We had so much fun. Uh, our staff was really excited. Um, I think we've been working with uh plant-based foods for uh, quite a bit now that they feel comfortable with it. Um, and it, part of it is like they want to show off what they already know. And also the excitement of trying out these new recipes. Um, I'm ex- I was excited about it because they were a diverse um, batch of recipes, mm-hmm. um, which is great for us. Um, there's a couple of dishes here that I have never heard of or seen. Um, and everything tasted delicious. And I think the student feedback um, was great. They agreed. They loved it. Um, There's a couple of students who said, you know, I'll still eat my regular breakfast, but this was really good and a, a great alternative. I'll try it again. Yeah. So. Uh, the brief list that you have here has some really good stuff. Like you've got shashka. And I'm curious how that works with, with no eggs. Um, madamas, which is one of my favorite dishes, period. It's, it's um, fava beans that are stewed. And it's just wonderful. Um, but I'm curious about shifts in using like meat alternatives in your breakfast plans. And uh, like some of them are good. Some of them are not. Was there an effort to try and limit how much you were using those products in these breakfast options? That's a great um, question, and I'll answer very briefly and then pass on to Chef, because uh, we default to whole food plant-based. We know there's a place for um, 
plant-based meats or plant-based cheeses, but we try to rely more on whole foods like tofu and tempeh, beans, grains, legumes. We want to do more whole foods. They're better for us. They're less expensive. So there's a place, for example, we were talking before this interview, uh, one of the recipes we tried was a Beyond Breakfast Muffin. So it's a corn muffin with jalapeno and peppers and onions and scallions. Delicious. But it has some Beyond Sausage Crumble, so a plant-based sausage. It was very tasty. It was served with a compound chipotle butter. Nice. So I think that's a great example of like, no, we don't want to serve an entire uh, like meat analog burger. It's not really healthy. They're they're quite expensive. Not everybody likes them. Um, But you can flavor with the plant-based sausage in a muffin like this. And so I think that was a great kind of meeting of the minds. We want to do more whole foods and they want to do more whole foods for their kids' health. Um, But it's also an expensive product that we don't want to use a lot of those meat analogs. Not everybody likes those. Right. So there's really, I think, a way forward, whether it's lentils, chickpeas, tofu, yeah. or one of the products that are plant-based. Yeah, and I agree 100%. Um, we have a allergen-free kitchen. So um, some of those products usually contain soy mm. or a lot of adder- additives. So uh, clean, uh, whole grain, plant- or plant-based, um, whole foods is the way we'd rather go. Um, I think there's a place for um, those products for someone who wants to try um, not eating meat but still want the same textures and flavors um, kind of as, as a gateway, you know, I would say. Um, but um, we definitely uh, would prefer more of a plant-based um, a whole grain mm. nutrition. That's Herman Alvarado, who is the Smith College Director of Culinary Services. And we're also joined by Dori Nang, who is from the Humane Society Food Service Innovation Specialist for New England and beyond, not just beyond meat, but beyond (laughs) as well. Herman, um, as the head chef at Smith, uh, and of all these recipes that you uh, have tried out with the Humane Society, was there one one that you were like, this is my favorite now? So I I know it's hard to say, but... I really enjoyed all the recipes. Um, these chai scented mendasi, it was the first time I've ever tried it. And it uh, reminded me of a beignet, you know, uh-huh, but yeah. uh, it was replaced with a chai spice blend. So it really gave it an earthy feel and it was just, it was so good. It was tossing some a little bit of cinnamon sugar, sort of a spice blend. Um, it, was, it came out great, the recipe. Uh, it, Incorporated coconut milk, mm. um, some of our local flour, and um, the chef that we had really enjoyed making it, you know, and I think um, he found some techniques based off of his personal knowledge, um, and, he, and he was able to improve the recipe a little bit more. He tested it. He thought it needed a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and after try and error, we, he came out with a great product. So. So this is the first institution that you're taking this initiative to. Where else is this going? Uh, I just want to be sure to mention that this is the first time we've done the breakfast and brunch oh. new recipes, yes. although we have been doing these types of trainings since 2017, and we've been to Smith. This is our fifth time, but the first time with the breakfast and brunch recipes. Uh, if I can add on about the Mondaisy that Chef Herman was talking about, I met a student from Kenya this morning who tried them, and, and they're apparently from Kenya. The, the recipe is from Kenya, and she said these are so good. They're really authentic. Cool. Mm. 
So did you ask which other... Where, what other places are you taking this to, to try it out? So we were just at RIT in May. They have a similar pledge, not quite as high as Smith College. Um, Penn State is also pledged. A similar pledge is a little bit lower. University of Michigan is also at 55%. So we our, our in-person trainings are saved for the pledged accounts. We still do virtual work. So if someone has a lower pledge or they're not able to set a sustainability goal, we still have a lot of resources, recipes. Um, we have webinars that we do. We have toolkits, a lot of resources on our forwardfood.org site. But when Smith College, for example, a place like Smith College makes that commitment to say, we're going to be sustainable in dining, we're going to serve 55% plant-based entrees by the end of 2025, they're already very close and we, we kind of help them get beyond that. Um, we have ideas for more collaborative endeavors in the future because Smith has been very forward thinking and plant-based um, for a very long time. So whenever we come here, it's not like introducing something brand new. It's kind of um, adding more ideas. And as our chef, um, who couldn't join us today because he's flying back to Detroit, um, <laughs> he said, these are a template. So we know the, the, the chef team at Smith is already very talented. You might want to flavor these differently. You might serve them differently. They might be here a wrap and you're going to do a bowl depending upon uh, where you serve it. And that's why we got feedback this morning during the takeover of Remind me of the dining hall we were uh, Cutter. Cutter. Ziskin. Cutter. Um, where There's we had a lot the, of them there. There yes. are a lot of houses. We're learning the lingo. Um, but we had the takeover there, and it was it was important to get feed, feedback from the students. And, and really, when I looked at the survey, they wanted it in every single house. You know, bring it here where I usually have my meal. And so it's up to the Smith team now to decide when they can put on the menus, how it's going to be served, if it was too spicy, if they want to season it differently, uh, if they want to serve it differently, if they want to cut the portions. Like I know when we were sampling yesterday, yeah. uh, sometimes you didn't want the entire sandwich or the entire burrito. So, you know, smaller bite size when it's a type of take all you, you'd like to eat, yeah. um, buffet style, it's easier to have smaller portions. So they'll work with that, you know, what, what works for their kids. Everywhere we travel, it's going to be a little bit different in dining. I have the most selfish question. Why is kanji not on this list? So we have had kanji at Smith as pop-ups, uh, and it's a hit. And I think we definitely have to have more of it. I mean, it's an easy vegan thing to do, yeah. and it's delicious. And now you're all well-trained now that you've been working with the Humane <laughs> Society, a food service innovation specialist yeah. for the Humane Society of New England. Dory Nang has been joining us, as has Herman Alvarado, the Smith College Director of Culinary Services. We're going to have to uh, poke into some of the dining halls and see which of these incredibly plant-based uh, menu items have made it after the training over the last couple of days. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. For having us. Tomorrow on the show, he plays 80 shows a year for about 40,000 people a show, and he takes requests. Boston Red Sox organist Josh Cantor will join us as MGM Springfield gears up for Red Sox winter weekend. Josh wants to play your requests live on the radio. Email them to us, thefab413 at nepm.org. And more Live Music Friday for Live Music Friday with Muswell Hill Dillies. And if your January is running dry, we'll explore mocktails at Jackalope with our resident mixologist, John Bilson. We'll see you tomorrow on the fabulous 413. Indeed.